Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast, and happy Monday. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, we're happy to welcome back Peter Weiner to the podcast. Uh, Peter, uh, welcome back. Thanks for having me on, Charlie. It's always a pleasure. Well, we have things to talk about. I have to admit that uh, that I'm I'm struggling with some things this morning. So I I, I got a a text message from somebody with a statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States of America. And I'm going to make a confession right now. I thought it was a parody. Okay. So it, it comes on the letterhead, Save America, President Donald J. Trump. And the statement in full by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States reads, the fraudulent presidential election of 2020 will be, comma, from this day forth, comma, known as, all in caps, the big lie, exclamation point. So Donald Trump's been sitting there down in Mar-a-Lago. He's been cogitating and decided that he's going to co-opt the term big lie and turn it around. And from now on, the presidential election is fraudulent and it is the big lie. Wow. Uh, Projection is alive and well, isn't it, Mr. Weiner? It is. It is alive and well. It was alive and well during uh, four years that he was president, and the descent um, into darkness with him is has uh, gotten worse, not better, since he left the presidency. But you're right. I mean, this is this is the action of both a sociopath and a demagogue, which is to appropriate the term. Uh, he himself has been perpetuating this this uh, this this big lie. Um, and there is something uh, about Trump, uh, so, some kind of instinct that he has, uh, which 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 has a certain genius with with his base, which is to try and take the very thing that he's guilty of and accuse others of being guilty uh, guilty of it. The, the most depressing thing about this isn't that Trump would call this the big lie. The most depressing thing is that the overwhelming number of Republicans today will um, say what uh, th- that it's the big lie as well, and and basically he sets the script and they they follow. It. That's that's the really um, damaging thing that's going on right now. Yeah, I guess the genius is his ability to dumb down the debate. And of course, the the last time that I can, well, I mean, this happened many, many times, but uh, I certainly recall uh, fake uh, his appropriation of the term fake news. Yep. I, w- I wonder how many people even remember that fake news was the was the phrase that was used to describe the disinformate the Trumpist disinformation and misinformation that we were were getting back in 2016, and he just simply turned it around. So let's stick with this, okay? So. Peter, did you did you watch this video of Trump at the open mic night down at Mar-a-Lago? He's yeah. out on the path. This, this is one where, again, we're in the, is this a parody or is this real? We 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 actually labeled the audio of this the the wedding singer <laughs> because he's he's standing out on the patio in front of a microphone. There's a band there, and he seems to have wandered out into a party. And he goes off on this rant about the election. Um, and he's he's obviously fixated on this completely absurd, ridiculous, ludicrous uh, recount that's being done in um, whatever it's being done, whatever you want to call it, being done in Arizona. And he seems to imply this is the beginning, I don't know, of, of unraveling the whole election. So I just want to, I want to play this and get, and get your thoughts on it, Peter. Uh, let's, let's, this is Donald Trump at the open mic night at Mar-a-Lago. Let's see what they find. I wouldn't be surprised if they found Thousands and thousands and thousands of votes. So we're going to watch that very closely. After that, you'll watch Pennsylvania and you'll watch Georgia and you're going to watch Michigan and uh, Wisconsin. And 
You're watching New Hampshire. They found a lot of votes up in New Hampshire just yeah. now. You no. saw that? No. Because this was a rigged election. Everybody knows it. And we're going to be uh, we're going to be watching it very closely. But start off by you just take a look. It's on. It's on closed circuit. I guess it's on all over the place because everyone's talking about yesterday front page of the New York Times. They didn't want to write it. But that's because they thought they were going to have a negative uh, decision that the judge gave them, gave us a positive decision. Yeah, let's see. Oh, so Peter, I, 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 I've watched this several times, and this is my—I have the hard time um, thinking this through. I mean, imagine watching that and saying, "Yes, that's our leader. We believe him. We follow him. Let's put him back in the Oval Office." Right. Yeah. No, it's that's that's a true, um, Charlie. I mean, the first thing I suppose that that needs to be said is is how pathetic and sad this is. I mean, this is a a, a person. Who is simply not well. He's psychologically unwell. Um, he is obsessing, and as you said, fixating on this uh, on this election. It's fascinating psychologically to consider what what happened be- because of his uh, narcissistic personality disorder that Trump had. He cannot uh, process the notion that he's failed at anything, and of course, he failed. Uh, in the presidential election. And this created such profound cognitive dissonance that he simply couldn't accept it. And this is how it's working its its way out. But this is a diseased mind that we're seeing play out. And as you said, um, I mean, that in and of itself would, would, would be bad enough. But the fact that he has so many followers. Well, that's uh, the thing. Right, who have, who have, you know, this is the kind of cult of a personality. The other thing I'll say is. Yeah, but, but wait, it, 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 yes, it's a cult of personality, but it's the cult of this personality. This is the right. thing about it is that it's kind of old news that he's narcissistic and pathological and everything, but that you have tens of millions of people who go, yeah, this is great that you have the entire Republican establishment, you know, from Kevin McCarthy on down. Who are basically going, unless you are loyal to this guy, we are going to purge you. This is, and believing this stuff is become the absolute litmus test for survival in the Republican Party. Okay, so Donald Trump is crazy. That does, frankly, no longer bothers me as much as watching everything that's happened, everything that's played out, watching that and going, yeah, we're into that and everybody needs to get on board this stuff. Yeah, I, I entirely agree. I mean, one of the tragedies uh, of of the Trump presidency, um, and one of the most important things that I think was was overlooked too often was um, not Trump himself, as you as you say. It was that the appeal that Trump had that that these these pathologies, this psychological uh, breakdown that 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 we saw time and time again, was not news to anybody. It's the fact that it resonated and. Of course, the reason that the political leadership supports Trump isn't because they don't know better. Chris Christie knows better. Kevin McCarthy knows better. A lot of them know better. It's the fact that the base demands fealty to Donald Trump, and they know it. And so this is this is a game that's going on. It's a sort of dangerous uh, synergy. The base itself has been radicalized and Trumpified, and is living in an alternative reality. And the political leadership, because they don't want to go crosswise of the base, is reinforcing it. And so you're living in this in this world that is utterly detached from uh, from reality. Well, and let's have an example of this. Uh, 
Over the weekend, I think probably everybody listening to this podcast knows about this, Mitt Romney uh, is speaking at the Republican convention in, in Utah, and this is what happened. Again, this is Mitt Romney, former presidential nominee of the Republican Party, former Republican governor, son of a Republican governor, a solidly conservative record. He stands up at the Republican convention. This is what happens. President Biden's first hundred days. Now, you know me as a person who uh, who says what he thinks, and I don't hide the fact that I wasn't a fan of our last president's character issues. And I'm also no fan. Aren't you embarrassed? Okay, so Peter, that I made that the subject of my newsletter this morning, my morning shots newsletter. That question, aren't you embarrassed? Because that seems to be the question here. How is the Republican Party not thoroughly humiliated by what it's becoming? But isn't this this moment that we're in right now where Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates are Republicans in good standing and Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney are pariahs? Yeah, boy, that is that is so true and that just Shows you the degraded state of the Republican Party. That was that was an amazing scene uh, in in Utah over the weekend with with Mitt Romney um, for several reasons. One you you mentioned, which was he was the nominee in 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 twenty twenty twelve. The other thing is that uh, Utah Republicans were among the least loyal Trump Republicans during his his presidency. Um, a lot of Mormons actually took took their faith commitment seriously, and and there was some distance between them and and the character of Trump. But I think that this illustrates something um, that I'm, I'm guessing that that you agree with, which is um, that the party now is more radicalized and more Trumpified since he left. Yeah. I, I had conversations with with uh, with friends after um, Trump was defeated, and these are responsible conservatives. Um, and they were hoping for a, a snapback uh, to the Republican Party that it would go back to what it was pre-Trump and become a sane party again. And that was a that 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 was a delusion because I don't think that they fully understood that the poisons had had been unleashed. And weirdly, Trump, um, I'd say in the latter half of his presidency, might have become a kind of restraining force on the Republican Party, not at the beginning, because um, I, I, I think that he radicalized the party and sort of unleashed these these poisons I was describing. But at some point, they, it was imbibed. And Trump, I think, at least when he was president, gave these people some sense of security. And now that he's gone, it's a free-for-all. All these freaks are trying to, to uh, outdo each other with Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and and on and on, trying to become, you know, mini Trumps. So I think the Republican Party is 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 more radicalized, uh, as I said, now than it was during during the the, um, the Trump years. Um, and what's unfolding as it relates to, to Liz Cheney in particular in, in the House is a really big deal. Well, let me read you um, what, what you what you wrote in, in the Atlantic. It was the last week in April, and and I, and I feel like there was a recognition right about the time that you wrote this that wow. 
it, you know, not only did the fever not break, but as you just said, it's getting worse. What you wrote was the hope of many conservative critics of Donald Trump was that soon after his defeat, and especially in the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, the Republican Party would snap back into its former shape. The Trump presidency would end up being no more than an ugly parenthesis. The GOP would distance itself from Trump and Trumpism and become a normal party once again. But that dream soon died. The Trump presidency might have been the first act in a longer and even darker political drama in which the Republican Party is becoming more radicalized. How long this will last is an open question. Whether it is happening is not. I and by wow, Peter, that's a gut punch. Because um, I don't think that you know many of us really thought that everything would go back to normal right away. But I have to admit that particularly in the in the hours after January sixth, to imagine that the Republican Party would become even worse, even darker, even more uh, hostile to democratic norms and separated from reality, um, I, I I I don't think we saw that coming. But I think you're right here. So, I, so let's spend a little time on all of this. You know. I know it sounds counterintuitive to say that Trump was was a restraining force, but at least there was like a a, a focal point, right? There, right? there was at least he was crazy, but at least he was there, and so you weren't going to get too much crazier. But but now it's like it's like you know everybody's freelancing, and there's a competition for who is the most bizarre. It's Tucker Carlson versus OAN. It's Ted Cruz versus Josh Hawley. And there's this constant sidestep to the crazier, crazier. And all of the incentives right. are for the crazy. So not only are is there are there no sanctions for the people who buy into the lies and the deception and the conspiracy theories. In fact, it's the opposite. Those people actually raise more money and become more famous. And the people who actually push back against it are the ones who are being purged, but so it is getting worse, and and it is getting more. Da- and the, and, the Repu- and as a result, the Republican Party is more dangerous than, even than it was under Trump. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. I think it's the it's the main danger politically to the country um, uh, by far, right, right, uh, right now. Um, and you know, as you as you mentioned, um, there is an incentive here to act in a crazy way. Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think in the first quarter raised $3.2 million, which is a staggering sum, particularly for a freshman um, to, to uh, have. And she's more popular in the party than, than, um, than Liz Cheney is. And I, I, what's going on, I think, is um, that uh, people, for the most part, I think, um, have resisted um, Acknowledging, really, almost through, not not you per se, but but I would say a lot a lot of people who are Republicans, um, just how deep the pathologies in the Republican Party went, and and honestly, they predated uh, Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump w- was a was in a sense a creation of those those things. He that opened the opportunity for him to become president, and then he accelerated all the worst tendencies. Um, he, he, he was a pernicious, uh, force for, for sure. Um, but, uh, this, the, the it, it unlocked it, it sort of opened Pandora's box. The other thing I think that's, that happened is, is that, um, you know, Trump, uh, won 10 million more votes in 2020 than 2016. Yeah. Republicans gained in the house. I think the one chance that might have had that the Republican Party could shake itself of, of Trump, and that the leadership, the political leadership, of the Republican Party would have would have broken from him is if they would have been wiped out, uh, you know, from from stem to stern. 
Um, that didn't happen. Um, they lost a the presidency, but as I said, they gained uh, 10 or so seats in the House. I think they gained one governorship. They did well in the state legislatures and, and so forth. And so what happened is the Republican Party, the leadership of the Republican Party, the political leadership feels like they threw their hat over that wall and their best chance to gain power um, is to stay with Trump, not to stand up to him. That's certainly the calculation that, that uh, Kevin McCarthy has. There was that brief window, as you alluded to, right after January 6th, the insurrection, where there was some movement away from him. But that lasted, you know, 48, 72 hours. But again, what the what the uh, members of Congress saw was how the base was reacting, and they saw this devotion uh, to to Trump, and nothing was going to shake it. Nothing shake, shook it for four years, not even an insurrection and an effort at a coup um, shook it. Um, and you know what we're seeing here has to be understood not politically but psychologically. I mean, I I really mean that, and I I think I probably learned more about politics in understanding. And having conversations with psychologists over the last several right. years than, than politicians. Because Same what here. we're seeing now has to be understood in a psychological term. The grievances um, on, on the American right, the siege mentality, the sense of existential fear, the um, hatred uh, for, for, for the left, the, this, this desire uh, to own the libs, to do a- anything that irritates liberals or progressives is by definition something that needs to be done, this journey into into a world of unreality. Those are psychological phenomena more than their political phenomena. What we're seeing, of course, is it manifests itself politically, but that's not what's driving it. So the headline on your Atlantic piece was, the GOP is a grave threat to American democracy. And the subhead was, unless and until Republicans summon the wit and the will to salvage the party, ruin will follow. So what would the wit and will look like? I, I'm, I'm struggling with this because I, you know, I, I thought all along that, that if certain thought leaders, responsible folks stood up and said, stop, you know, stand athwart the crazy and said, you can't be serious about this, that it might make a difference. I, I no longer know who that would be um, and how it would work. Yeah, I agree. I think I think it it is very difficult. Look, Charlie, it may be the case that this is um, this is a virus that simply has to r- run itself, or a fire that has to run itself out, and that just may take some period of time. And at this point, the fire is uncontrolled, and there's not a lot that can be done about it. That doesn't mean that individual uh, leaders within the Republican Party and governors, people like Larry Hogan and uh, Governor Cox in Utah and others, shouldn't shouldn't speak out, and you know, life is a theater of vicissitudes. John John Adams said things can change. There are inflection points often that you that you don't anticipate. All that any of us can do is be faithful. Um, that doesn't mean we'll be successful, and we'll just have to see how things unfold. But but if you use this metaphor of a, of a fire, there are times in which a fire is simply out of control, and you have to wait it out. Um, now, maybe there are things that can be done among political leaders and, and, and others who can, um, who can accelerate the process in, in, a positive, in a positive way. But right now, it's, it's really tough. I, I do think that if the collective leadership of the Republican Party did speak out, it would have some effect. In the short term, it would be very contentious because the base would get, would get angry. Um, but I just think that you have to speak truth to power and you have to hope and trust that the truth will out. But I understand your point and I think I agree with it right now at this particular moment. I don't know that there's any any way to to get this uh, 
contained at least for the time for the time uh, time being it, it may be that something like what happened to the British Labor Party has to happen to the Republican Party you'll remember um, the British Labor Party in the late 70s and 80s up through the early 90s was a deeply radical party and they had to lose and lose badly election after election after election uh, to Margaret Thatcher uh, most of the time. And that created an opening for Tony Blair and New Labor. Uh, and he reformed the party pretty quickly, and he won, won a lot of elections. But that took time. And Bill Clinton did something similar with, with the Democratic Party, you know, from 72 to, to 88. They were crushed in almost every, every election minus 76, which, of course, had the, the backdrop of, um, of Watergate. So sometimes um, the only thing that can do this are a series of thumping defeats. And the Republican Party hasn't experienced that yet. And 2020, unfortunately for it, was not a thumping defeat. Well, in 2022, they may take back the House. My, you know, my, my, my sense is that there's a reason why you're not seeing any sort of, of an, autops, uh, an autopsy or any sort of a, uh, you know, looking in the mirror because they're, they're pretty comfortable with where they're at right now. I also am a little bit concerned that uh, that the Democrats may be overreading the mandate. Um, you know, the control of of American government is determined by is de- determined not just by the base; it is determined by you know certain swing voters in in certain swing states. And so I'm I I do I, I do worry about this. See, I have a I have a specific question for you. Again, going back, one of the things, and I'm sure you've done the same thing, is to keep asking. You know, um, what were the turning points? How did we get here? You and I were both part of a conservative movement that we thought was uh, was pretty sensible, pretty rational, um, and which has been exposed as being neither. <laughs> but um, you you have Joe Biden who is proposing the the most massive increase of in spending that we've seen since, say, the Great Society, a really dramatic, and I'm I'm not saying this in a pejorative way. I mean, you know, we're talking about massive increases in the role of the federal government, really rolling back uh, the the, the entire Reagan revolution. What strikes me, and I wrote about this over the weekend, at least when it comes to the conservative grassroots, there's nothing like the Tea Party focusing on the spending, the size of government. All of the energy is now in the culture war. So it's also a shift in what conservatives care about. I mean, they care about cancel culture, but you're not seeing people, you know, having protests about healthcare, about the debt and about the deficit. So I guess this raises the question, what was, in retrospect, what was the Tea Party actually about? Yeah, it's, it's a really good, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I, I take it that at least on some level, it was, uh, the tail end of of some elements of the conservative movement, which was the, the limited government. Remember, the Tea Party came out of the um, the, the financial crisis of 2000, mm-hmm. 2009. Right. And often you see a kind of populist movement, which is what I think fundamentally the Tea Party was. I don't think it was a conservative uh, response as much as it was a populist response. And it was anger that the banks had been bailed out. Now, actually, the, the TARP plan, the, the plan that bailed out the banks, uh, was, I think, in retrospect, a very successful program. It, it kept us from from going into a deep depression, and that all of that money was was paid back. But that was, in a sense, beside yeah. the point. It was this notion that that the Wall Street. But by the way, you'll know this better than most most yeah. people. What we began to see, I would say, in, in the sort of two thousands, mid two thousands, if if you listened on talk radio, this this was a kind of canary in the coal mine to to me, and I imagine it was for you too. Um. 
as you know, so Rush Limbaugh to, to take him as, as as an illustration because he was clearly the most important radio talk show host um, in history. So he goes national in eighty eight, eighty eight all through the nineties, early two thousands. The 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 binary was liberal conservative uh, for 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 Rush Limbaugh and and all of the acolytes and all of the people who who, who basically followed uh, um, Limbaugh. But then, sort of in the mid to two thousands, end of uh, the two thousands, early twenty ten, it shifted to establishment, anti-establishment. Right. The party began to drift from conservative to populist, and conservatism and populism are not synonymous. And in, in, in many cases, often they are they're uh, antithetical to to one another. And so, the Republican Party became not not conservative, but populist and angry populist. And at the same time, you had this distancing itself from the party of ideas. You and I were formed sort of in the shadow of the Reagan revolution where there were serious ideas, uh, you know, Alan Bloom and the closing of the American mind and Richard John Newhouse and the naked public square and, and, and uh, losing ground and Antonin Scalia and the Federalist Society. There was a kind of pride that, that we took in being conservatives because we thought there was an intellectual rigor to to conservatism now that wasn't all of conservatism but that was a lot of it um and there became and grew an anti-intellectual movement uh and you could you could see it gain steam and of course it personified itself in some respects in 2008 with sarah palin mm-hmm. where she became a kind of rock star she was clearly more popular with the base than than john mccain was um and she had no acquaintance with with uh any any uh any ideas um, so it, it, it was populism, and when populism um, catches on like this and, and ventures into the, these more pernicious forms, um, it it's bad stuff for for the country. And um, right now, the Republican Party um, is concerned completely with sort of the performance aspect of, of politics. The, the idea of serious governing of a serious agenda is uh, is out the window. We saw that in 2020 because there was not even a platform. Which is pretty much a tell. No, the, what you're describing is absolutely right. And it's not just the, you, you said, you know, the angry populism. It was that rise of that perpetual outrage machine um, where you know, all of the energy was spent in getting people angry and, and you know, often angry at um, Republican leaders who were trying to explain to the base what was possible and what was not possible, the whole idea of governing, of compromise, uh, you know, really became, um, was was really thrown out. So, I mean, that goes back to the Tea Party because I think you saw a little bit of that. And, and I know that there are some of our liberal listeners who think that the Tea Party was all about the fact that Barack Obama was a black president and it was, you know, always racist. But, you know, there's there's a little bit of truth to everything, but the Tea Party was a lot of different things. In the beginning, it, there was a genuine grassroots element, not totally. A lot of it was funded by, you know, Americans for Prosperity through the Koch Network, but they were concerned about small government and government spending. And then over time, it kind of morphed into something that was taken over by this new generation of entrepreneurial grifters and then the extremists and the kooks. And now we have a, you know, sort of vestiges of the Tea Party that have nothing really to do with small government or fiscal conservatism, they're completely Trumpy, they're completely culture war, they're completely into sort of, you know, performative outrage all the time. So you can kind of trace that, you know, through that movement. 
because, uh, you know, I, I went back over the weekend. I was looking at some of the signs from the Tea Party movement. And you would think these people were really concerned about government spending and, uh, and, and, debts and, and debt and deficits. And that just seems like kind of a sick joke now. Yeah. Well, you would have thought uh, once upon a time, Republicans cared about uh, character in presidents and oh, public officials too, uh, as, 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 as you recall. Well, I remember in the you know late 1990s, uh, every day Republicans were taking a two by four against Bill Clinton uh, because of his immoral conduct with, with Monica Lewinsky. Um, I, I was one of them. I was critical of that, uh, not just for the act itself, but that he lied under oath. And people like Al Mohler pushed the Southern Baptist Convention to pass resolutions about the importance of character in public life. What did Al Mohler do in 2020? He said he's voting for 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 Bill Clinton. By the way, uh, no, no, Mo- uh, Donald Trump. Oh, Donald Trump. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he voted for, for uh, said he would vote for mm-hmm. Donald Trump in, in 20, 2020. So you've seen a reversal on any number of of issues. You mentioned, uh, you know. Um, limited government, uh, the deficit and the debt, which exploded pre-COVID, pre, uh, exploded uh, under Trump. The Republican Party used to be the party of free trade. Uh, it became a protectionist party under, under, under him. It made morality a centerpiece of foreign policy. That was the great debate in part between Reagan and Nixon, right? Real politic versus Reagan's uh, rollback of communism and, and, and making morality central to the to the uh, foreign policy and national security cause, and what was what was Trump about? He was having this bromance, this love affair with probably the most brutal dictator in the world, Kim Jong Un, and these other autocrats. So the Republican Party has completely flipped from what it was. I don't consider it, by the way, and I, I don't think you do either, a conservative party. I think conservatives now are politically homeless. It's just oh, yeah. Of, of things. And, and I think that in many respects, in some deep fundamental respects, the Republican Party is less conservative than the Democratic Party, at least when it comes to temperament and disposition, which is a very important core element of, um, of conservatism. It's, it's, as we've been talking about, it's a radicalized party and it's an anti-institutional party. The idea that a conservative party uh, or a conservative would be would would be a member in good standing um, of 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 an institution of a, of a party that that is anti institutional just just doesn't square. Uh, yeah, I mean, just on on this issue of of Trump and the deficit, the the numbers are pretty remarkable. Um, he uh, he pre- he presided over the ballooning of the national debt from nineteen point nine trillion to around $28 trillion, which is an increase of more than 35% in just four years. So not a surprise that Republicans would, you know, they go through the motions of talking about socialism. I'm not sure what they actually mean by socialism all the time, um, but they do it. But your point about that the, the Republican Party is no longer conservative, that it has become more radicalized. It feels more like the European right wing in some ways than than an American, um, uh, you know, an American conservative party. But give me your sense then about how you're feeling about Joe Biden, because of course, Joe, Joe Biden is, you know, looks feels more like an FDR than even a Barack Obama. So wh- where where do conservatives go? I mean, your your sense. I mean, in terms of his disposition and his style. He seems much. I mean, he he actually. There's a certain conservatism in his and his respect for institutionalism and everything, but the policies. I don't think it would be fair to say are conservative in any way. 
Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I, I think Biden is, is something of a of a mixed bag. I should say when I when I think about uh, Biden, I, um, I would disaggregate. But the first thing I say is I, I'd rate him very, very high on deportment, um, on, on, on conduct. And after four years of Donald Trump, that matters a great deal, more than it ever has a lot. I have a president who's a sociopath or an insurrectionist. Now, that used to, once upon a time, that, that wasn't anything you would really have to factor in. But today it is. And I actually think that the conduct of, of Joe Biden, the person of Joe Biden, is important. I mean, I think he's a dignified person. He's an individual with great personal empathy. He's dialed the rhetoric down, um, especially compared to to Trump. Um, and I think he's trying to depolarize things. And by and large, I think is a kind of healing agent in our politics. Um, and I think that matters. I, mean, I think it matters a lot. Um, so that's that's one. The second thing is that the most immediate and main task that he faced coming into office was inroads against COVID. And there, I think he gets pretty high marks for the vaccine distribution effort, and the messaging. I think has been has been has been has been good. When you go beyond that, to his uh, to his domestic policy and his foreign policy, and then let's call it the, the sort of the culture policies. There, I, th- I think it's it's more more mixed. He's much too profligate uh, for for, uh, for for my taste. I'm not sure that he's spending it wisely. I'm I'm a big fan of the child tax credits. Mm-hmm. I like direct subsidies. I think that the, the evidence is pretty overwhelming. That's the way to go. Um, but but the amount of money is huge. And I, 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 look, I'm at my, I guess, in my core, something of a reform conservative. And when you're spending this amount of money, and it's possible David Brooks has, has made this point, which is his implied diagnosis, Biden's, is that what's happening in the country is, is a series of structural problems, the, you know, the inequality, the social fragmentation, this, and the social distrust. And it may require a once-in-a-generation investment. Now, that may or may not be right. If it's right, then I would be much more comfortable if Biden was advocating the reform of what I think are, are broken institutions the modernization of those institutions. So the money is going to be, be used more, more effectively. And then there's a question of, of, of the debt. Now I don't pretend to understand anymore what the inflection point is at debt. Mm -hmm. When, when, when does a debt actually cut and and begin to cause serious economic damage? Um, I think most people, if you would have talked in the, you know, in the late eighties, and you would have given a figure like this. They would have said that that this would have led to an economic catastrophe, and it's uh, and it's and it's not. Um, on foreign policy, I, I think it's mixed. I think the the he's steadied our relationships with the allies. He signaled to our adversaries and and despotic leaders that the the days of that romance I was referring to are, are over. He acknowledged the Armenian genocide, uh, the commitment to Taiwan. He said is rock solid. I think that's good. That he's condemned the, the persecution of the, the Uyghurs in China. So, so those are all good. My, my biggest concern at this point is Afghanistan. Um, I think the withdrawal of, of the troops there is probably unnecessary. I think it'll have, a certainly from a humane perspective, a lot of damage. But I think it may hurt us geopolitically. And I, and I, I think that Biden was just ideologically committed to leaving there. I don't think that the facts on the ground argued for it. I think the downside of leaving are higher than the upside. And then the last thing I'll say, uh, Charlie, sorry for, for being long-winded nope. here, but um, 
I don't think Biden himself is animated by the culture war or wokeness. Uh, he's from, not from that generation. But the Democratic Party itself, the, 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 the energy of the Democratic Party is certainly there. And, and Biden has supported things like the Equality Act, uh, which, which has to do with gays, lesbians, transgender. Um, I oppose uh, an alternative, the Fairness for All Act, because I think the, the Equality Act is a real threat to religious uh, liberties. Um, and I do think that that you know the defund the police rhetoric that you hear that's not Biden's rhetoric. I think he's been pretty responsible, but that energy in the Democratic Party is is there. And I'm concerned, and I I know you are too. With this the, this cancel culture wokeness. I know those are imprecise terms, but we basically know what we're talking about, which is a sort of totalizing ideology. And it's a notion. Um, you see this. You know, it was confined to the academy for years and years. Um, but it's now spread to journalism and other areas of, of public life. I think it's wrong. And I also think um, that it's going to unnecessarily divide the, the, uh, the, the country. So I'm not a progressive. I'm a conservative. Um, I think Biden has done you know, reasonably well, quite well in some areas, reasonably well in others, not so well. Um, but we're going to see if, if, a, if by the end of this year, if we've got a sane person who's president, if uh, the pandemic is in retreat, if the economy is growing at 6%, if right. businesses and schools are open, if we suffered no international crisis or terrorist attack, and if the administration isn't marked by corruption or lawlessness, you'd have to judge that to be a pretty good first first year. We're, we're conservatives, you and I, and so we believe in human experience and we believe in what the facts and the realities say. And so we're just going to have to see how this plays out. No, I agree with you. And um, you know, on you you touched on this. One of the things that after 2016, actually before 2016, I I tried to make the case to uh, to our our friends on on the left that they they needed to take the issue of religious liberty much more seriously that that um that issue was off the radar screen for a lot of people and yet was was one of the driving forces forcing people to the right and voting for Republicans because there was a sense that okay we're willing to go along I, I think there was a willingness to go along with with many of the the shifts on gay marriage and other things but if you if you had a carve out for religious belief you would come to a I think a sustainable compromise, but it, it felt like um, in, in, instead you had some of the uh, culture warriors at ramming speed, and I think they paid a price for all of that. And I'm, I, I continue to be concerned about that. But to your point about um, optimism, you know, it, 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 I'm looking at this new poll, ABC News Ipsos poll that came out yesterday. Um, asking Americans, do you feel optimistic about the next year in the United States? And 64% said they felt optimistic, only 36% said pessimistic. Now that is a dramatic turnaround. And if Joe Biden succeeds in getting people to feel more hope, to feel more optimistic, if in fact we do get a handle on the pandemic, if the economy does grow at, at a 6% rate, uh, you know, if the schools reopen, then this has been a very, very good first year for him, and 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 all of the the you know inside baseball issues back and forth um, won't matter that much. I think there might be even a a little bit of a shadow of an era of good feeling. Not to say that we are not still bitterly divided and we don't have real threats to democracy, 
But given everything that's happened to this country, for two thirds of Americans right now to say they are optimistic is 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 quite a thing. And Joe Biden deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I think I think I think that's right. I mean, I think part of it is is simply being not Donald Trump, but I think he really has conducted himself. If you think of of a president as both head of government and head of state, I think it's head of state Biden has done extremely well. You know that poll. Um, underscores, I think, one of the problems for the Republican Party, because the country, generally speaking, is becoming more optimistic. But the Republican Party and the base of the party in particular, including a lot of white evangelicals, is going in exactly the opposite direction. They are seized by a kind of existential fear. And when you have a party or a base of a party that is out of touch with the majority of, of the country, that creates the, the quandary that the Republican Party is is in. Because you're not going to win primaries by by uh, you know uh, spitting in the wind uh, of 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 the base, but they the the base itself is out of touch with with uh, with the party, and so as the country overall gets more optimistic, the Republican Party is 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 uh, becoming more angry and and more concerned. By the way, I wanted to say one other thing just to to uh, reinforce something that. I saw you had said this morning, I think on, on Morning Joe, which was Ronald Reagan, I thought about it because you mentioned optimism, and, and that was such a central part of, of who Ronald Reagan was, at, really at his core. He was a man of such sort of fundamentally sunny disposition, and I think you had said that you know if, if he ran today, he wouldn't win. I don't think there's a chance uh, that he, he, would, he would be the nominee because he... Reaganism and Ronald Reagan himself, I mean, fundamentally who he was as both dispositionally and temperamentally and in terms of his governing philosophy is utterly out of step. He was a man of, of grace, um, of good humor, um, and, uh, and, and his, his attitude, the, the attitude that informed his views on immigration was America being, as, as we know, shining city on a hill, a place of where it invited uh, the, the strangers and the aliens and, and made them and made them welcome. And he was not angry. He was almost never angry. And Trump himself is nothing but radiating anger. And so is the base. And it is pretty amazing. And so anyway, I, w I wanted to say just to reinforce and, and applaud what you said. I don't think there's any chance that Reagan or anybody running like a Reagan would uh, would win the nomination. We saw some of that in 2016, right? Which is, there there were a whole, that was a pretty impressive field of 16 in, 20, in 2016. Well, we thought and, so. At yeah, the time, at the time, <laughs> we thought so at the time. Well, I actually think it was pretty impressive. It's it's just that 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 uh, they were running uh, in a party that uh, that was looking for for Donald Trump, and I think that's that's a condemnation not of them but of the people who 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 wanted Donald Trump. Well, you articulated this much better than I did, but I I really do feel strongly that that we need to understand how far this party has moved from Reaganism. The Reagan could not win a a primary these days because of the disposition, because of the temperament, because he doesn't feed that outrage machine. But also, uh, and and again, very specifically because of his attitude toward immigration. But he was also willing to do things that are no longer acceptable, including things like compromise, work with Democrats, put together bipartisan packages. Uh, you know, people forget when he became, you know, president, uh, Democrats controlled Congress, and yet he was still able to push through um, much of his uh, much of his agenda. But also, that's a very, very different era. We didn't have the entire infrastructure, the, uh, the infrastructure 
of the of the outrage machines. Um, we didn't have the the media ecosystem that demanded you know the constant uh, flow of of anger and vitriol, um, and that was constantly ginning up outrage. So it is interesting the number of conservatives who try to pretend somehow that that what we're seeing now is not a repudiation of Reaganism. You know, it's interesting, you know, the Young America's Foundation headed by my my old uh, fellow cheesehead, uh, Scott Walker, um, who has become very, very, very Trumpy. And yet, you know, they're, they own the old Reagan ranch and they and they continue, even though they're pushing an, a thoroughly Trumpified agenda, uh, they, they just they just uh, brought on Stephen Miller um, as a, as one of their featured guest speakers. They still try to pretend that that you know what they're representing is not this this fundamental in your face repudiation of the man whose name they invoke all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it just struck me in this conversation. This is really, really kind of going back <laughs> to the day. But um, Reagan was criticized by the right by people like Howard Phillips and Richard Vigory. And what happened now is that the Howard Phillips and Richard Vigories have basically dominated the party. I mean, they, they, yeah. they've left their input along with, I would say, Pat Buchanan, who yeah. I think was a much more significant figure than any of us realized at the time. Um, the, the Buchanan uh, run for the presidencies in 92 and 96 really foreshadowed uh, Trump in almost every important respect. I would say if you, if you wanted to understand Trump and Trumpism, the two figures probably to look yeah. at would be Pat Buchanan uh-huh. uh, and George Wallace. I think I that- agree. That combination of individuals um, explains the the who Donald Trump is and the rise of 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 Trump and why I think ultimately Trumpism will um, will fail. I think it needs to fail for for the sake of the republic. So one one, one last comment to sort of loop around to where we began, but that I thought it was a parody that that uh, the Trump put out a, uh, a a statement saying that he was going to from now on call the election the big lie. It's interesting what's happened to the state of language, and I'm sure you've you've uh, you've thought about this. When Mitt Romney is speaking in uh, Utah, they were yelling two names at him. They were calling him a traitor and a communist. And it would be interesting to know what did these Utah Republicans think the word communist meant. You know, it actually used to mean something. It had a real, tangible reality. And now it's just obviously a free-form insult because in what sense is Mitt Romney a communist? He's a traitor only in the sense that he's not loyal to Trump's lies and, and, to, and, and to his character. But it is interesting the way language has just been battered and twisted and distorted. And I suppose that would be another indication of the derangement of the conservative mind and and of the of the, of the drift toward authoritarianism where where words mean what we want them to mean rather than having any sort of discernible real objective meaning yeah i i so agree with you charlie and in a book that i did in 2019 the death of politics i actually devoted um part of a chapter to to, to the power of words you know george orwell wrote i think it was in 1946 um a, a very powerful essay um, on on the, the the destruction of language and political language, and, and and the corruption of language is a manifestation of the corruption of thought, and vice versa. I mean, they they they, they interact with with each other. And Orwell is a very important figure for 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 your listeners to go back to and read and study 
um, because of the obvious Orwellian uh, elements that um, that we're seeing. And words matter. Um, words are, are among the most powerful things in human life. Um, and all you have to do is to think back of of of, of, of books and and poems. Um, and things that that move the human heart and shape the human sensibilities. And even if you think about great presidents, often people think of them not because of their public policy position so much as words, you know, Lincoln with malice toward none, with, mm-hmm. with charity toward all, John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, Reagan, tear down this wall, mm-hmm. Mr. Mr. Gorbachev, mm-hmm. uh, FDR, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. There's a reason that those words resonate um, because words are, are windows into the soul um, and, um, and the right words can elevate um, elevate our sensibilities, our moral sensibilities. Um, they, they can lead us to see, see beauty, um, and, and goodness. Um, and the corruption of words can do the opposite. It can pull us down and it can corrupt our sensibilities. And we're in a period right now, um, a really difficult and, 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 and hard and low period in American history. And the, the degradation of words, um, is 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 a manifestation um, of that. We have, this country um, has a lot of repair to do. I have a friend who years ago said you could be a theoretical uh, pessimist, but you need to be an operational optimist. <laughs> I think we need to be operational optimists. And as I said earlier, we, we each of us individually just has to be as faithful as we can to the good, uh, to the moral good, to the common good, um, and hope that this country, which, which, you know, has had such a remarkable history of its capacity for self-renewal is one of the wonders of, of, of human history. Um, but this is, a, this is a tough moment right now. Peter Wendt, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Peter is, of course, a contributing writer at The Atlantic and a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Good to have you back, Peter. Thanks, Charlene. Thanks for all your work. It's, uh, it, it makes a difference. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. All right. That was great.